Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matt Coward-Gibbs, one of the channel's hosts. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Sam Han, who will be discussing his new book, Interfacing Death, Life in Global Uncertainty. Sam is a senior lecturer in anthropology and sociology at the University of Western Australia. As an interdisciplinary social scientist, Sam's work reaches across social, cultural, critical theory, new media studies and religion. As well as his new monograph, which we'll be discussing today, he is the author of Technologies of Religion, Spheres of the Sacred in a Post-Secular Modernity, Web 2.0, and Navigating Technomedia, Caught in the Web. Sam, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on, Matt. I appreciate it. I was wondering then if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, even though, um, as you noted in your introduction, which was very nice, thank you, um, I am based in uh, Perth, Western Australia. As you could probably tell by my accent, I'm not from Australia. Uh, I grew up in New York City, um, and I uh, did my PhD in New York City uh, at the City University of New York. Um, And then afterwards, I moved to Singapore, and I taught at a Nanyang Technological University uh, in the Department of Sociology over there for six years. And then I made my way over here to Perth. Um, so I've sort of, I, I just realized this. Um, I've lived and taught on three different continents, although it doesn't seem all that, it doesn't seem like I have because it seems sort of very kind of connected somehow. Um, but yes, so I've kind of been, um, I grew up in New York and I lived in New York for 30 some odd years. And then I've kind of moved to the other side of the world. And uh, with each move, I seem like I'm getting, you know, farther and farther away. (laughs) (laughs) That's great to hear. So I was wondering then if you could begin by um, telling us a little bit about how you actually came to write Interfacing Death. Yeah, so um, I I sort of see my, I'm in sociology and I'm a a trained sociologist, um, although uh, the discipline here at the University of Western Australia is combined anthropology and sociology. Um, so my identity is as sociologist, but I'm not one of these disciplinary flag waivers. Uh, I've never felt really comfortable in sociology, so to speak, um, or rather, um, I had a very sort of, um, ambivalent relationship with the discipline. Um, as I mentioned, uh, my training, uh, was done in the States and of course, American sociology is a very sort of unique, uh, brand of sociology, if I could put it that way, or maybe genre would be a better way of putting it. Um, as many people, uh, uh, across the world would probably recognize American sociology is highly, um, quantitative, although there is a very strong sort of ethnographic tradition as well. Um, and as someone who has always been interested in social theory, I've always been in sociology out of convenience, so to speak, and less so because I thought sociology was, all that special. That's probably heresy to a lot of people. But uh, for me, I was, I guess, you know, this goes back to when I was uh, an undergraduate. Um, I was, I had the great fortune of studying with a sociologist named Charles Lemmert, who was, and I think still is one of the premier social theorists in America. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't go um, 
to that particular uh, college. I went to Wesleyan University, which is a small liberal arts college in, in Connecticut. Um, I didn't go there to study with him. I had no idea who he was. Uh, it just so it, it happened that I was interested in sociology. And then I sort of, um, you know, uh, I was taken under his wing. But uh, from very early on, I was interested in theory. Um, so I kind of pursued uh, classes that dealt with theory. So I was a double major in sociology and literature. And in literature, of course, I was dealing with theory there as well. So I kind of ended up in sociology because, um, you know, uh, the people who are most receptive to what I was interested in were there, uh, but that not because I had some kind of um, a particular understanding of uh, sociology and what it meant to be a sociologist. Um, I say all that because um, I'm very proud of, of uh, my positioning as a theorist. And this probably has more to do with, uh, as I said, my, my kind of formation uh, in the United States in a, in a kind of context where theorizing in the discipline is not really valued as it used to be. Uh, in fact, I would still say today, American sociology really consists of, of kind of marginalizing theory or kind of um, using theory as garnish, as I like to say. Uh, it can't be the main thing. It's got to be the thing you sprinkle on top. Uh, and I find that to be sad. Um, and I didn't like that. And in fact, I didn't, I didn't know that until I reached grad school where I was sort of socialized and professionalized into the discipline. And I realized, oh, I guess what I thought I was doing, which was, which was, you know, sociology to me was sort of, um, considered by many as kind of marginal and a niche. Um, so, you know, in thinking about, uh, my work generally, I, have always kind of seen myself as a theorist, um, and that's sort of my approach. My, my approach is always going to be theoretical. Um, and for a lot of people, that smacks of sort of an allergy to empiricism or uh, empirical work. Uh, I don't think that's the case at all. To me, uh, I treat theory as a sort of hermeneutic. Um, so my previous works have always been theoretical in the sense that I'm interested in theoretical debates and discussions, but I'm still looking at specific objects or specific phenomena. Um, and this work, uh, Interfacing Death, emerges out of, I guess, uh, the previous six or seven years uh, where I was working in a interdisciplinary field that I guess I would call sort of like cultural and media studies of religion. Um, mm. so at the city university of New York, um, I studied under, um, uh, three amazing, uh, scholars, um, the head of the, the, my, uh, primary, uh, supervisor was, uh, a social theorist by the name of Patricia Clough, uh, who's uh, very kind of, um, important in, um, I would say, um, affect theory and bringing affect theory to bear on sociology, um, and I also studied under, I would still consider one of the kind of last great, you know, living Marxists. Actually, no, that's not true. I mean, uh, but there are others, but I, I would put him in, you know, the, the top three living Marxist theorists in the world, Stanley Aronowitz. Um, and, and so those are people who I thought were, uh, who, who did theory and were proud of it. So I sought uh, those people. And uh, anyway, I, I bring that up because um, I, my sort of uh, previous work uh, and my doctoral work had been uh, the study of technology use among American Christians. Um, and that's sort of um, where um, I got to thinking about both um, digital culture 
and also matters of religion. And I wrote two books on this topic, one which is called Technologies of Religion. um, And the one that came out before then, although it would have been completed after, uh, is a book called Digital Culture and Religion in Asia, uh, which I co-wrote with my former colleague uh, in Singapore, uh, Kamaluddin Mohammed Nazir. Um, And those two books were kind of investigating, you know, the nexus of religion and technology. Um, And I was always interested in how people were always surprised that religious folks, whether they be uh, Christians uh, from Oklahoma in the United States or Muslims from Indonesia and Malaysia, were really into technology because I think a lot of people assume that uh, very religious folks are kind of anti-modern. And um, being anti-modern means that uh, you're not interested in um, streaming your worship services and connecting via YouTube uh, sermons, etc., um, which I might note is very topical uh, today. So, uh, yes. So that got me started on kind of this religion and media stuff. Um, and then finally, when I was kind of done with those two works, I thought, well, I want to transition to sort of um, the nexus of media and religiosity. Uh, so not necessarily institutional religion, but things that could be considered religious that are not necessarily religious per se. And um, I thought about death as sort of that perfect um, area to kind of pursue. Um, death is still today, I would say, in kind of uh, secular, post-secular societies, but also highly religious societies, treated as sort of sacred still. Um, death is all, when someone passes away, the mood is very somber, there's a certain kind of protocol and offering condolences. And I thought, well, you know, death still, you know, bears some kind of um, uh, sacred notion, I think, today. And I thought, oh, why not kind of um, continue this kind of cultural and media studies of religion, but kind of turn it into cultural and media studies of religiosity or or post-religion. And that's how I kind of came, that's how I arrived at uh, death and digital culture as sort of the topic of the book. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. It kind of, it makes me think of a a colleague of mine, uh, Ruth Penfield-Mounts, and her almost soundbite in her recent volume of that idea that death matters matter mm-hmm. and that no matter how hard we try death is always part of everyday life and everyday culture that's right and i thought you know it was i thought death like religion was kind of treated um as sort of um over and done with and that doesn't mean that people stop dying obviously but um you know as a result of modernity we were supposed to have been kind of done with religion and also done with death. Um, That is to say, death was no longer something that, um, uh, something that kind of gave us meaning in a central way. Death was no longer that which was supposed to be explained. Uh, We understood death to be a natural process and there were ways in which we sort of medicalized and scientified death. Um, So I thought um, death and religion sort of had a a structural equivalent. Uh, They had kind of equivalent positions in the narrative of modernity. So I thought that was sort of ripe. But um, as you said, your colleague is right. Death sort of um, is always there with us because um, it's sort of, you know, that's the phrase, right? Death and taxes. Those are the two things that are guaranteed. (laughs) No, absolutely. So I was wondering then if you if you might mind by um, if you might um, give the viewers and the listeners here an overview um, of the kind of content of the book. Right. So um, the book is sort of 
uh, it's trying to do a lot of things at the same time. Um, but one of the things that I try to do is to sort of recover the notion of the interface. Um, the interface um, is uh, something that I uh, take from media studies, uh, in particular the work of Alex Galloway, but also others like Mark Hansen and uh, various other media theorists who've been interested in the work of Deleuze on the one hand and Levinas on the other. And my argument here is that um, death uh, has not gone away um, in kind of contemporary times, but that death has been mediated in a particular fashion. And for me, the particular theory of mediation that I hold on to or that I try to present is the theory of the interface uh, for reasons having to do with uh, the way in which we sort of digitally interact with each other and ourselves. Um, so what I try to do throughout the book is sort of um, lay out um, this idea that death has not gone away, that it doesn't simply exist in hospitals and hospices, but that death is ever present. Um, and that's really uh, in media today, right? So I kind of begin with this position that death is pervasive uh, and that we're dealing with death more than ever uh, because of the specific sort of media situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, and then I sort of go through chapter by chapter kind of examples of this or instances of this. Of this. And I try to have a sort of global perspective in doing this. Um, and this is something that I tried um, to sort of uh, tackle in my introduction. Um, it's not, you know, as the subtitle says, Life and Global Uncertainty. I, I tried to make the, the book global. Uh, in perspective. And of course, that's sort of a, it's a, it's a tall task, obviously, because by global, you're kind of a, you're, you're giving the reader this idea that you're covering the entire world. Obviously, that's not the case. Um, it, it's sort of comparative in the sense that each, each empirical chapter goes back and forth between uh, a set of, a set of questions that are rooted in um, and ex uh, that are kind of culturally rooted in either East Asia or in the West. And I try to go back and forth. And this is, I, I, I fully acknowledge, a sort of antiquated way of doing things. Um, this sort of smacks of the, the old way of thinking about sort of East-West studies. And I know there are still places and research centers that are, are called East-West. And, um, you know, that has a very specific sort of history in academia, I understand, which traces back to the Cold War. Um, but I wanted to sort of, you know, kind of, um, have a work that's comparative without calling itself comparative. Um, because of course, in sociology, as you well know, Matt, there's a, there's a, there's a whole kind of field called comparative historical sociology, which I don't do. I'm not trained in that tradition. So what I try to do is sort of go, uh, have a sort of, uh, a, a Northeast Asian chapter and the sort of a Western chapter. And the reason why I picked Northeast Asia is because I've done a lot of empirical work on Northeast Asia. Um, so that's sort of out of, um, um, convenience really. So, um, so, so I kind of look at the way in which death and digital culture come together or how death is interfaced through digital culture in kind of various, um, phenomena or examples. So, um, one of the chapters, for instance, I, um, I explore online suicide packs in Korea and Japan. Um, and your listeners may or may not know this, but um, Korea and Japan have had some of the highest uh, youth suicide rates or just suicide rates generally in the OECD. They kind of trade first and second position in the highest suicide rates in the OECD. Um, and one of the interesting things about uh, suicide in those contexts is that um, youth suicide is very high. Um, and all the kind of work that's come out of uh, both South Korea and Japan has kind of focused on how youth suicide is very different from uh, the kind of forms of suicide that take place uh, in the United States or in Europe. 
Um, that's because in Korea and Japan, there's something, there's a, there's a phenomena called the online suicide pact. Um, and it's exactly what it sounds like. Um, young folks with kind of, um, suicidal ideation, um, instead of sort of, um, going on to end their own lives on their own in a sort of individualized fashion, um, they go on the internet to various forums and they ask others to join them and to kind of commit a pact. So that is to say, uh, they want to kind of die together, which is the title of the chapter. And I, and I bring that up, um, obviously, uh, in order to discuss the kind of classic Durkheimian uh, framework for understanding suicide that exists in the social sciences. And for Durkheim, obviously, that has to, you know, suicide was directly kind of correlated to anomi. And I wanted to kind of bring up the fact that um, in Japan and Korea, what's occurring is a kind of uh, exertion of collectivity, not a withdrawal from the social, actually, but a kind of an assertion of the social in uh, in suicide, and I thought that that had, that that would kind of open up a, a lot of dis- different discussions around not only the kind of Durkheimian analytic that exists in uh, kind of Western understandings of suicide, but also I think the way in which a digital culture is, uh, for various reasons, uh, social. And I, I I wanted to sort of explain that, and I and I want to shout out my co-author there, uh, Amalin Hussein, who I wrote that with. Um, and then I move on to other sorts of similar kind of uh, similar topics or, or topics that are, are, are like that. So the next chapter is on, on, on selfies, on killer selfies. And, and I'm sure, um, uh, you and the, the listeners are aware that, uh, killer selfies is, is sort of a, a phenomenon where, uh, because of the, the widespread availability of, uh, front facing phones, uh, front facing cameras on mobile phones, uh, people go to kind of extreme lengths to get the perfect selfie. And the killer selfie is how uh, the public health uh, literature has described uh, the deaths that result from people trying to take selfies in very sort of dangerous places. Um, and I try to sort of use that as an opening to discuss personhood and ontology there. Um, so um, with the killer selfie, I tried to suggest that there's a, there's a way in which we are exerting not so much uh, a kind of unified self, but a, a self that is sort of... Um, uh, for sort of fragmented, and I and I draw from the the Delizium literature here of the individual, um, and the, and you know, and I sort of the that that sort of where I take that discussion, um, and then you know, I'm also interested. I've I've also sort of written on um, celebrity deaths uh, and celebrity mourning, um, and I do that through the investigation of a particular celebrity death, uh, the death of a Korean actress named Choi Jin Shil, uh, and I, I try to look at her death through the lens of, of course, on the one hand, uh, the classic media events literature, Diane and Cats, but also uh, Civil Religion uh, by Robert Bella. And I try to see the way in which uh, uh, her death uh, galvanized a certain kind of nationalism in South Korea at the time. Um, So, of course, I'm still interested in the way in which death does social things or or, or enacts certain forms of, of collectivity and sociality. Um, and then the following chapter is, uh, is on terrorism and on, on beheading videos and what sort of, um, what, what, what that does. And I guess, um, you know, uh, the kind of the rash of videos that Daesh, uh, or ISIS had, uh, released made me think of how we understand death. Um, and, and the beheading video as a particular sort of genre and what that does to kind of spectacle theory on the one hand, but also thinking about the ways in which terror is understood through a particular kind of death. Um, 
so yeah, and that sort of le- leads to the the following chapter, which is on um, the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei uh, and the way that his work commemorates death. So in that chapter, I investigate Ai's work, uh, which I call his kind of uh, memorial work. Um, so Ai is very famous for being critical of the Chinese uh, Chinese state, uh, and I look at not only his sort of uh, artworks and installations. Uh, there's a very famous one involving backpacks. So after a very sort of devastating earthquake. Um, in China, one of the things that was even more devastating was to learn that uh, children were killed as a result of uh, shoddy construction of their schools and the way in which I um, kind of um, critique the state and, and critique the kind of development uh, that the Chinese state was engineering and, and the, the lack of government standards in, in buildings, uh, I kind of put together a bunch of children's backpacks Right. Uh, and that's very powerful. And um, I look at that, but also the way in which I uses Twitter uh, and the way in which I kind of self broadcast to kind of uh, galvanize a certain kind of uh, political critique. Um, and then la- and then, you know, the, the final sort of empirical chapter is on, on um, the way in which we understand tragedy. Um, that is to say, um, how do we understand tragedy as we see more and more bodies pile up? And the two examples I look at in that chapter are uh, Black Lives Matter, in particular, uh, the the troubling footage that was circulated of the death of Philando Castile in Minnesota, where his partner, uh, after he was pulled over and subsequently shot by a police officer, uh, Facebook Live the uh, whole ordeal. Uh, and then I also look at the circulation of uh, uh, of the image of uh, the young boy Alan Kurdi. Uh, who washed up on the shores of Turkey. Uh, and I try to look at the way in which we understand the migration crisis. Um, so yeah, so that last chapter is on how we understand tragedy and whether tragedy really sort of still matters today as a, as a way of kind of uh, mobilizing um, kind of uh, questions around social change and justice, et cetera. Um, so yeah, so that's sort of my, my book in summary. And, and, and the conclusion isn't really a conclusion. It's, uh, it's a kind of uh, a last bit on biopolitics and necropolitics and thanatopolitics. Um, that is to say, you know, the kind of the discussion that Foucault opens up around, um, you know, uh, to let live and let die in that amazing piece on governmentality, I think today uh, is sort of uh, the discussion is, is around um, exactly that. Who, 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 who gets to die and who gets to be mourned um, and who gets to have a dignified death and all that. So, yeah, that's sort of my book in a nutshell there, Matt. <laughs> Thank you. And I think that's really interesting, the idea of who, who gets to die and who gets to be mourned. I think that actually draws me up to something you mentioned very interestingly in the um, actual introduction of the volume. Um, you, you say something along the lines that digital culture bears the brunt of what is wrong with the world today. I think that's a really interesting idea, kind of read. I think you read it along the lines of kind of folk devils and moral panics in the kind of opening of this argument. And I was just wondering if you could expand a little bit on that for me. Yeah, so that that sort of, um, uh, for for the American listeners, um, you'll you'll know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll explain why this is uh, kind of unique to America. I, I sort of end that section with a little bit on Joe Scarborough, um, Joe Scarborough um, is a is a morning uh, news show host in America for a channel called MSNBC, which is sort of seen as a left leaning um, channel. And the reason I bring that up is because Scarborough had tweeted something about um, video games and how um, you know millennials, uh, 
because they're so, and because millennials are digital natives and uh, millennials sort of live their entire lives on the screen are so busy um, playing war kind of military video games and not thinking about serving their countries in actual war. And what I took from that was this idea that the digital was sort of um, ruining us, A, but also removing us from understanding what is important in life. And for Scarborough, what was important in life was death, real death, real death that you experience or you witness when you serve in the military, uh, as opposed to the sort of fake death that you um, only kind of experience from afar um, in a Luddick fashion on kind of video games like Call, uh, you know, uh, what is it, Call of Duty? Right. So, right. So I I saw that uh, I I started with that because I thought the digital was always seen and is still seen today, I would say, in in kind of public culture as the reason why everything is wrong. And I thought it's so interesting because I had heard so many critiques of the digital. In fact, in my previous book, Web 2.0, I have an entire chapter on the sort of backlash against digital culture. And I never read the kind of criticism until I saw Joe Scarborough's tweet of digital culture as removing us from death. And that is, and that speaks to the sort of, um, the, the, the moral baseness of millennials. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting that the digital is not only what's wrong with the world, but because also it kind of moves us further and further away from death. Yes, and I think that's really interesting, especially I think you you also then go on to kind of discuss the smartphone as kind of an object within this. And I think it's just fascinating how much of this kind of artifact, this, this piece of technology then interrelates with our kind of experiences of death, obviously within the idea of the the death selfie, but especially kind of the work of um, um, the the um, situation concerning kind of Alan uh, Curdy as well, and the kind of spectacle of beheading and these low quality kind of well sometimes low quality videos and images that are circulated via these kind of technological devices. That's right, and I think you know I've been I've been sort of meaning to write this sort of um, and maybe I will later on on this sort of. Um, uh, this capture imperative, um, you know, I say this, uh, I think I, I quote this in the, um, in the book, but you know, there's a whole ethos around pics or didn't happen. Right. Um, and this idea that because of the proliferation of a capturing device, uh, that's on our bodies and sort of always tethered, uh, to us. Um, and many people describe, uh, leaving their phones at home accidentally as feeling naked. Um, that we have this idea of, of being able to sort of um, not only broadcast, but share and experience things together simultaneously. Um, and, and, I, and I love what you said there, Matt, um, because I think there's something about um, the sort of amateurish nature of all this. And by amateurish, I don't mean to be sort of derogatory. I mean amateurish as in uh, it's sort of open and democratic. Everyone has access to, uh, if you have a mobile phone, chances are that you have a camera on there. Um, and that sort of changes the game in terms of what is shared. Um, I think this became especially operative in uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, where um, you know the whole kind of um, the circulation of images and video of police brutality um, did something. 
And this is something that I think is quite important for us to think about in relation to the previous work done in sociology on the civil rights movement. I would say, if you look at the sort of classic texts that uh, examine the American civil rights movement, um, the work of Alden Morris, Douglas McAdam, uh, even Todd Gitlin, um, and Todd Gitlin's book is, I think the whole world is watching us. Um, there's, a, there's an argument there, um, of course, there are differences between McAdam um, as well as um, uh, Alden Morris and others uh, around resource mobilization and whatever. But I think one of the things that they all agree on is that the mediation of these kind of images of um, these activists down at lunch counters getting uh, uh, you know, uh, forcefully removed from lunch counters, um, dogs being, um, you know, German shepherds being sort of, um, you know, sicked on individuals, uh, water hoses, uh, you know, these are all sort of important images that uh, the kind of the, the social movement literature that examines the civil rights movement of the 60s says was very important because it sort of uh, helped uh, Americans understand the kind of the moral appeal of the civil rights movement. And I think today what you have is a different sort of infrastructural scenario where we don't necessarily need um big news teams to cover the event, uh, what you need is someone with a mobile phone. And I think that sort of, that sort of changes uh, the way in which these images circulate. Um, not necessarily for the better, I would say, but I think just generally there's a, there's a different sort of um, uh, dynamic going on. Oh, absolutely. And I think it kind of links back to, again to the, the subtitle of the book, Life in Global Uncertainty and the way we're kind of working with this nature of uncertainty against kind of proof or truth that something has or is happening in that situation. Yes, I think, um, you know, the the theme of uncertainty, obviously, I'm drawing a lot from um, Zygmunt Bauman, uh, among others. But I think, you know, uncertainty is, um, you know, more than ever, the thing that sort of um, you know, I, and this maybe is a different discussion, but I think um, a lot of people feel that um, neoliberalism as a kind of analytic category has sort of exhausted itself. Um, I, I don't necessarily think so. I think it's because uh, people have sort of abused the term. Um, but I think one of the things about uncertainty is that it's that that describes, I would say, the kind of emotional or affective costs of neoliberalism. Um and of course, um, that, that means that a lot of things are happening. That means kind of institutions that we could have relied on uh, maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago are sort of crumbling before us. Um, I say that to you as an American um, in particular. So I think uh, the kind of ability to capture does something um, uh, for us. Uh, I don't know exactly what to describe that as, um, but I think there's something something about, uh, as I keep using the term capture, uh, I think there's something about the capture ethos that I think is directly uh, a result of uh, uncertainty. Um, I've been toying recently with kind of Eric Fromm's classic notion of to have or to be, and I haven't sort of uh, fully fleshed that out, but I think there's something to be said about having, you know, having proof, having uh, images, having pictures, uh, and this relates not only to witnessing and sort of um, capturing moments of uh, police brutality, but also, um, you know, taking pictures of oneself in front of the Mona Lisa in the Louvre. Um, why do you, you know, it seems like that's the whole purpose of the Mona Lisa, which is to kind of serve as the backdrop for people's selfies. 
I think that's interesting because it's something that you pick up on as well, kind of, um, especially in the kind of penultimate chapter of the book where you talk about this kind of medial logic of what is or is not tragic mm. in that sense. And therefore there's, there's this real tension almost between newsworthiness in a traditional media sense and then also this push of almost capturing and citizen journalism maybe Mm -hmm. yeah i think um yeah so that 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 sort of you know the tragic to me is sort of um the way in which we used to understand um these sorts of images and of course that's the chapter that i'm discussing black lives matter and the migration crisis uh uh in Europe in particular, but also affecting the rest of the world. Um, yeah, the tragic is a way of kind of framing this. And of course, the classic work in all this is um, uh, Boltansky, right? Distant Suffering. Um, and, and I think there's something to, to think about there because as these images become um, more pervasive and they proliferate and they're more available, do they then dull our sort of... Um, ability to be outraged by them, to be sort of um, uh, incensed by them, to be affected by them. Um, I think Boltansky's worry, and this is in the 90s, I believe, was that the kind of tele, the, the televisual image was sort of already doing that work. Now, think about where we are today, Matt. I mean, television, I mean, television is so kind of quaint, if you think about it now. These images are floating around super fast uh, across the world. Um, and that makes me really wonder, and they're happy, you know, they're appearing before us on social media, which are not even uh, within the kind of media logic of backwards chronology as they used to be. These are all algorithmic, right? They appear before us through, uh, not because of what people are posting that's, you know, uh, in our social network, but because of what various algorithms think we would like to hover over or click on. So does that kind of... Uh, bring us uh, to the limit of the tragic? Are we rethinking what it means to understand the tragic? Uh, Because of course the tragic uh, as a kind of genre form um, is directly tied to uncertainty. Um, Tragedy is about as a, as a kind of uh, as a sort of uh, dramaturgical genre is about uh, the kind of attempt by individuals to skirt fate, right? Uh, To sort of um, take off or to kind of, yeah, take off the yoke of fate, of certainty. And then guess what? They try and try and try. And then, you know, it it kind of, it's a snarling vine. It sort of um, uh, grabs them by the ankle, even uh, in spite of their best efforts. And I think today we know these sorts of tragic things happen all the time. So does that make us treat them as less tragic or are we just resigned to the fact that sort of tragedy is what we're dealing with all the time? Um, And I I don't really... um, have a, I don't have a full formed uh, answer to that. I'm, in fact, uh, I guess this is kind of anticipating uh, uh, another question you'll ask later on, but that's one of the things I'm working on right now, which is a short book on tragedy. Mm. I think that's really important as well, because especially tragedy seems so interwoven with these ideas of kind of spectacle that especially you're picking up with um, in your discussion of kind of terrorism and uh, Daesh. And I was just wondering if you could maybe um, explore a little bit more of the way in which you're kind of using these notions of spectacle in that. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, you know, the theory of the spectacle has been around, um, 
I would. I mean, of course, uh, De Boer is uh, is the is the is the key figure. But I would even say uh, Plato's allegory of the cave is sort of a, a spectacle theory. Um, yeah, I think um, you know uh, the Daesh is is an interesting sort of example, um, just because they are dealing specifically with a sort of they're trying to create a genre. Um, Daesh is very sophisticated in terms of its media use. Um, Daesh is, you know, ultimately trying to become a state. So they try to do statish things like, you know, have a police force in its territory, uh, have an ambulance service. It's, it's trying to function as like a state. And what it also does in its sort of, um, beheading videos and, you know, in the course of doing this work, I've had to watch some of this, uh, more than I would, uh, uh, on, on a regular day. Uh, and you see that there is a specific kind of formal quality to these beheading videos. Um, the orange jumpsuits, right. And that's directly a kind of reference to Guantanamo Bay and the images that were circulating of, um, the people who were picked up by, uh, us forces, uh, and then, um, brought into uh, Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. Um, without formal charges pressed against them. And of course, this is the era of the Bush administration that sort of created this um, weird territory of uh, 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 non-enemy combatants, whatever that means, so as to skirt the Geneva Convention. Um, but that's, yeah, that, that, that orange jumpsuit was a direct kind of reflection of another piece of media. So what we're dealing with, um, with Daesh in particular, is a kind of uh, intertextuality, I would say. And Daesh tries to make their video short enough so that it could appear on evening news shows uh, in the West. So Daesh is directly sort of responding to the kind of formal qualities and aesthetic um, kind of characteristics of Western news. And, and, and that, to me, is, is creating a particular kind of spectacle, but a spectacle that's sort of ready to be circulated. Um, and, and the beheading is, of course... Um, a way of thinking about um, sort of as a way of playing into um, the West's understanding of Daesh's sort of appeals to, you know, the so-called caliphate or whatever. Um, So the kind of tropes of quote unquote barbarity uh, that the Western news media sort of ends up using is precisely what Daesh in those videos is trying to play up. Uh, Not to mention the fact that for a long time, these Daesh videos were hosted by uh, someone who had the nickname, I believe, from the, the UK tabloids of Jihadi John, who had a, who had a London accent um, and was clearly a, a UK national. Um, and I think Daesh did this on purpose. And I believe, and I'm not sure if this is the case, uh, the, the language, uh, the other kind of languages that Daesh operated with was also very specifically kind of, uh, French I'm thinking of, was a very sort of kind of specific kind of like not only regional French, but also very specifically locatable uh, French. So as to say, um, our fighters are from the core of the metropole, so to speak. Um, So yeah, it's not simply spectacle as in spectacle like, wow, it's spectacular. It's a singular event. It's a spectacle as in it's a genre. uh, And it's a spectacle that's sort of um, um, clearly kind of drawing on... um, all kinds of media sources. So I was trying to think of, uh, of uh, I was trying to kind of rethink spectacle theory as beyond uh, 
the the kind of singular spectacle, but as sort of a long the long array of spectacle, so to speak. No, absolutely, and it's making me also think of kind of narrative um, journalistic accounts as well. I think um, there's one American Jihadi, I believe it's called, that kind of tells this narrative of an American national who is within kind of the um, an, a terrorist organization that's name I can't quite remember off the top of the head, but they're kind of voice calls and conversations. So there's almost a more of a humanization and a personalization that is taking place within these that's kind of helping form that genre and that kind of almost parasocial interaction to an extent which you pick up on in the kind of previous chapter. Yeah, that's right. I think that that kind of parasociality, um, which I discuss um, through celebrity, but I think this exists here as well. Um, That's a very good point, Matt, because, um, you know, the idea of having someone with a kind of, uh, you know, London accent is is a very deliberate choice, obviously. It's to it's a it's a kind of call to um, other dis- disaffected youth uh, to say, hey, um, you know, come come join our cause, so to speak. Um, and, and what's so interesting, I think, is especially in the case of the kind of uh, the kind of journalistic accounts of American jihadis, is um, they always begin from their childhood. You know, they say, oh, they grew up in a very sort of regular, typical American childhood. And of course, typical American is highly racialized, highly classed. Um, you know, and, and this what, what, what we're supposed to do as an audience is to be like, wow, you would never expect those people who could be our neighbors, who would be prototypical Americans to kind of join the cause. Whereas I think... Um, uh, with uh, figures like Jihadi John, I think it has a very different sort of effect, which is to say um, the people who are living in specific neighborhoods uh, of Brussels, of London, of Paris. Um, yeah, you know, some of these folks uh, may may end up wanting to join the cause. Right. So that's I think there's a there's a bit of a difference there on either side of the Atlantic. But I think, nevertheless, there is a kind of that's part of the spectacle as well, right? It's not simply the beheading video that is spectacle, but it's the kind of uh, the consequences of that and that circulating that also um, is part of that spectacle. And, and you know, to address this, I use um, the work of the art historian W.J.T. Mitchell, right? This is the, the kind of bio picture, right? The image mm-hmm. as not only uh, the image itself in terms of content, but, you know, the kind of forms of distribution. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well, it's almost like when we then consider the case of kind of Alan Kurdi, we're almost seeing that take place in reverse, especially in more kind of right-leaning media within um, Europe. The the migration crisis was um, very difficult, but then you see this kind of idea of innocence, of childhood lost as well, and that almost again renders this kind of way of interacting more closely and more actually humanizing rather than dehumanizing. Right. And I think, you know, this brings back um, something you noted earlier, which I didn't quite address, which is about vulnerability. Um, Who gets to be mourned? Who doesn't? Right. And I think the figure of the child is very important here. Um, You know, I chose Alan Kurdi because that's an image that I think a lot of people are familiar with. But I think, um, you know, in particular with the the migration crisis in Europe, um, the, the images of children are very much deployed. Uh, the images of women with children are deployed as well. Um, and I think this is something that is quite um, quite obvious uh, because um, 
uh, on the one hand, there is a kind of attempt by, um, you know, I would say maybe sympathetic media is not the right word, but but media who are trying to sort of uh, give a, a human face to this issue of migration, which in Europe, as you note, has been sort of the fault line and the sort of the the the, the basis for a lot of uh, you know nasty nationalism and fascism, even. Um, but but I think there's something to be said about. Um, about children in this regard, the images of children. Um, I have a I have an honor student right now who's doing a project on uh, medical volunteerism. So not necessarily volunteerism, but this thing where you know you can go in for like a week or two and do some kind of volunteer work in parts of. And because I'm uh, situated in Australia, um, you know a lot of folks go to Southeast Asia, and of course on their websites. Um, they detail how much they how much work they do and who benefits from this work, and it's inevitably children. Um, it's inevitably brown yeah. children. Um, so I think there's a there's a certain kind of um, uh, a, a way in which vulnerability and even um, humanity is still um, racialized uh, in a particular way. No, absolutely, that's fascinating. Well, Sam, we. We've taken up a lot of your time already, so I suppose what I'd like to do to draw to a close now is to just ask you our traditional final question. So you've already mentioned that you're working on a short book about um, tragedy, but could you tell us a little bit more about what you're working on now and where this project is taking to you, taking you next? Yeah, so as a result of writing this book, I really, especially that tragedy chapter, I thought, wow, like, you know, there's so much more I wish I could say. Um, so then I thought, you know what, maybe I write a short book. I like writing shortish books anyway. And I feel like, um, there hasn't been a kind of short book on the importance of the concept of tragedy for the social sciences. So I've, uh, I've, I have a book proposal in with a publisher and hopefully that'll be looked at soon on the importance of tragedy for the social sciences. That's at least the working title. And, um, and I thought, Hmm, okay. So where would I begin with all this? Um, of course, there's a classic work of Nietzsche, but then I realized that, you know, uh, the kind of uh, Max Weber um, has this idea of sociology as secular theodicy, right? And what is theodicy? Theodicy is kind of the way in which religions and then later, you know, society explains evil in the world. And tragedy was precisely that, right? In in ancient Greece, tragedy was a way of explaining why things didn't go exactly right for all people. And that's why tragedy sort of is always kind of uh, undergirded by this notion of fate. Um, and I thought, oh, okay, so we have something here. Uh, we got a little bit of Nietzsche. We got a little bit of Weber. And I think today more than ever, and I've, uh, you know, I, I fully acknowledge that I'm speaking to you um, in, in conditions of kind of a global pandemic, where tragedy more than ever becomes a way in which we understand the world. And my kind of question would be, what are we trying to understand about the world when we call things tragic, right? So there are deaths that are tragic. There are things that are tragic. Everything seems to be tragic. Well, what do we mean by that? What, how does that word function? And um, so for me, I'm trying to sort of investigate that, but also kind of put forth the idea that uh, sociology needs to have a certain kind of tragic vision. And this is not a new idea. Many writers have been sort of uh, working around this notion uh, in particular, Terry Eagleton, his book on sweet violence, uh, has sort of defended this kind of tragic position. Uh, and I think that's important for us, especially today, because 
um, more than ever, the kind of the narrative of progress that uh, modernity and the Enlightenment uh, before that was was supposed to uh, that that you know that we sort of take from uh, the Enlightenment the idea that things are getting better um, is kind of under threat. Uh, so I thought you know especially in uncertain times the idea of the tragic would be useful uh, for the social sciences. So that's what I'm working on. Um, I also have another project in the works, uh, which also stems from this book. Um, you know, I, I, my, the final chapter of this book has to do with biopolitics, and that's, of course, the politics of life. Um, and, I, and I thought, hmm, okay, the politics of life, um, you know, there's, of course, the notion of biological life, but there's also other kinds of life. Uh, and I was thinking in particular of lifestyle. So I'm working on a project right now called Styling Life, where I'm kind of exploring the ways in which um, uh, ethics and aesthetics sort of come together in contemporary, what I'm calling self-making. Um, so I'm looking mm -hmm. at sort of examples of this, um, not only in the sphere of wellness, but I'm also looking at it in terms of sort of um, YouTubers who are really kind of uh, interested in um, giving advice around um, kind of craft um, so, uh, I'm looking in particular at a bunch of YouTubers who are really interested in kind of, um, shoe maintenance and leather, uh, <laughs> and leather care. Um, and I find that to be all sort of kind of, um, you know, a way of exerting a certain kind of aesthetic and ethical, uh, self project. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm working on. And that sort of came out of my kind of re-engagement with the biopolitics literature, because of course, a lot of that, and in particular, the work of Nicholas Rose is important here, because it's not only about the politics of life as in biological life, but it's about how we understand life, qualified life. Um, and I thought, I think today more than ever, we understand life as not only biological, but also as ethical and aesthetic. Yeah, they sound really exciting, and I can't wait to hear more about them. Um, once again, Sam, I'd just really like to thank you for your time. It's been great to chat to you again uh, today. And so thank you very much. And uh, we'll be seeing you soon, I hope. Yeah, thanks so much, Matt.